0: East.co. Last year we shared a mini-series called Crypto for Institutions to cover the basics of the rapidly evolving ecosystem from an investor's perspective. Through conversations with Eric Peters at One River, Michael Sonnenschein from Grayscale, Seth Jins from CoinFund, and Ari Paul from Blocktower, we covered the case for Bitcoin, a path to access investing beyond Bitcoin, and trading strategies. Over the next three weeks, we'll dive in a little deeper with Crypto for Institutions 2. This six-part mini-series explores where we are today in the rapidly evolving world of crypto and blockchains. We'll share conversations with the leading allocator to the space, four top managers, and a key service provider. The mini-series is strategic in nature Allowing us to learn without requiring technical lingo and expertise. For those interested in a more technical exploration, I'd encourage you to listen to Web3 with A16Z, Colossus's Web3 Breakdowns, and the Pomp Podcast. Crypto for Institutions 2 is brought to you by Anchorage Digital. Anchorage Digital is the premier crypto partner for institutions. It offers custody, trading, financing, staking, governance, and the first federally chartered digital asset bank, all with unparalleled security. With support for a wide variety of digital assets, Anchorage is trusted by hedge funds, venture capital firms, banks, family offices, fintechs, treasuries, and asset managers. Learn more at anchorage.com cap. That's anchorage.com C-A-P. Today's final episode of Crypto for Institutions 2 is a special sponsor insight from Anchorage Digital. My guest on today's show is Diogo Monica, the co-founder and president of Anchorage, the first federally chartered digital bank. Our conversation covers Diogo's uniquely qualified background for this role, the importance and implementation of digital asset custody, and Anchorage's client-driven extensions from custody into brokerage, lending, staking, and governance. We close covering the creation of the bank, partnerships with Visa, and what's next for the company and its clients. Be sure to stick around for the closing questions to hear Diogo's perspective on exceptional hiring practices for startups. We are incredibly grateful to Anchorage Digital for sponsoring Crypto for Institutions too, and are eager to highlight their value to the investment community. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, this week, why not reach out to one of your best friends and tell them, hey, I know we talk all the time, but I don't think I had a chance to tell you about the Capital Allocators podcast. At the end, the host always asks the guests what life lesson they've learned that they wish they knew a lot earlier in life. I was wondering what yours is. And by the way, the podcast is awesome. You should check it out. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Diogo Monica in the final episode of Crypto for Institutions Two. Diogo, great to see you. Great to see you too, Ted. Well, I'd love for you to take me through your background and how that led to the founding of Anchorage.
1: Absolutely, it's actually a. Uh... Really interesting story because it starts about 12 years ago when I and my now co-founder, Nathan McCauley, joined a little company called Square the same week. So <laughs> that's uh, that's when the story actually happened. So Nathan and I have actually been working together for 12 years at this point, And we were working together for seven years before we started Anchorage. If we zoom back a little bit more, before Square, I was working on something that was not particularly useful 15 years ago, which was a PhD in distributed systems and security, which you can say that now has a modicum amount of utility, given that all of blockchain is essentially distributed systems and security is so fundamental for this asset class. And so joined Square very early on, we were employees 40 and 41st, just around. So we joined in early 2011 and really created a, a great partnership, worked together leading the security team at Square for the next four years. My cool claim to fame at Square is that we are actually on the patent for the little encrypted credit card reader that I'm sure you've swiped your card on. And so that was a really fun process. There was ups, there was downs, there was lots of infrastructure built, that now is moving hundreds of billions of dollars of annual IGPV still at Square. And then after four years at Square, we also moved together as a pre-product that we'll hire to a company called Docker that now runs on over half of the internet. And so the container ecosystem and the security that we built into it really runs on every single cloud provider today. And it was in late 2017 that we decided to start Anchorage because we're getting a lot of these requests for institutional investors that were reaching out to us and were actually having a hard time investing in the crypto asset class. It was still nascent. It was the boom of the ICOs. And so I was doing consulting on my free time while at Talker, and there was a fund that reached out to me that had lost the passphrase to a $1.5 million Bitcoin wallet and offered me 20% if I could break into it. So that was my introduction to the need of this business. Talk about selling painkillers, right? That's a large (laughs) amount of pain that could be solved with with a key recovery. And then more and more of those funds started materializing until we realized this is a real business. Institutions do not have the technology that they need to safely invest in this asset class. And so that was really the starting point. Anchorage is now today a very different company, but it really started from the core need for security underlying infrastructure to invest in this asset class. And that's why two secured engineers were the perfect
0: co-founders to start this business. So you're gonna have to take me back. How do you get involved in something called distributed systems 15 years ago in your academic portion of your career? That is an interesting
1: story on its own. So for context here, I've always been... Uh, security nerd. So I loved security. My dad taught me how to program when I was twelve, and I love this aspect of security systems—creating little software that moved the mouse around, and opened and closed the the drives. If you remember the CD drives of computers, those kinds of things were really fun. The beginning of the internet and learning about websites and website security and servers running servers. So that was all really interesting. So security was a passion. And back then, if you think about it, 15, 17 years ago, there was no specific cybersecurity curriculum. So you really had two choices. You had electronics and you had computer science. And so I decided to go deeper into this path of networks and distributed systems, which was the most obvious and the closest area to security that existed because it was where all the security was being developed. And so the other thing that is context that is interesting here is that I was pushed by my family, specifically my dad, to do a PhD because not of my own volition, but essentially everybody in the family has a PhD. My dad has a PhD. My sister has a PhD. My dad's dog is named Doc, And so... (laughs) From very early age, I knew that I didn't really have a different path. And if I wanted to be part of the family and belong, there was this large overhang in the form of this credential. And so when I did my PhD, it was obvious that distributed systems and security specifically for distributed systems was the closest to my individual passions. And so to a certain extent, it was an obvious path. There was a path that was available to another one. It was obviously a very fortuitous path because it got me where I am today.
0: So before we get into what Nathan and you decided to do, you have to answer for me, what happened with that private key customer with the million and a half dollars they couldn't access in Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, we were able to recover the passphrase, which actually was a lot simpler than you'd expect, which goes to show how very sophisticated investors can be very unsophisticated when it comes to private key management and operational security. How did that work? What ended up happening was interesting. So they had lost the passphrase to this wallet, but they had what is called the recovery seed. And this is something that is pretty interesting to know. Early 2017, there were no institutional custodial solutions available. Investors were literally using consumer devices, $50 devices. They were generating wallets on their normal personal laptops, and they were storing these seed passphrases, which is effectively a set of 12, 24 words that allow you to recover your passphrase to a wallet in case you lose it, and they were storing it in their password manager. They were writing down on paper and keeping it in a desk at the office. They were doing what would you traditionally do with your own passwords. And we all know what happens to your traditional passwords and how many of us have had to recover access to our private accounts. So of course, that was not enough and sufficient for institutional investors. In this particular case, they had the seed, but it was to a prior version of a software that had been updated a few years later. And so they were sitting on Bitcoin with a seed that didn't really, was able to be recovered on the new version of the software. And so for that specific case, I didn't have to do anything fancy, brute force the for, for phrase, or do anything that was complicated from a security perspective. I simply had to go to a prior version of the software, compile it from source, and then it was able to actually recover the keys. So in this particular case was easy, but let me tell you that there are tens of billions of dollars worth of private keys that have been lost in an irrecoverable fashion. So that is the status quo right now. When you have this ability that crypto assets give you of being your own bank, of doing self-custody, of having this very instrument, it really brings out this principle of maximum liberty and maximum responsibility. And the maximum responsibility is if you really don't do a good job, then you will lose access permanently and there's no recourse.
0: So when it came time for you guys to think about doing this business, you started with custody. Clearly, that was an issue in these examples you were seeing. Why solve for custody first? The interesting thing about custody
1: in the digital asset space that is somewhat different than the traditional world is if you think of a prime broker in the traditional world, you can actually create a business at many different layers of the stack. You could do an execution business. You could do a custody business. You could do a lending business. All of these businesses are somewhat independent. And part of the reason why they're independent is because there's very clear segregation in the traditional world in the form of DTCC and in the form of other different types of market structure, who owns the security and how to actually transfer ownership. So that's why there's introducing brokers, there's carrying brokers, etc. Digital assets work in a very different manner. There is no DTCC. There's no central repository. Owning the private key of Bitcoin is ultimately owning the ability to own the asset and settle the asset. And so if you don't own the private key, you can't actually do the associated business. So let's actually see what that means. What that means is that if you, in digital assets, want to do lending and want to take, for example, crypto, say Bitcoin, as collateral towards a loan, so somebody can borrow dollars against Bitcoin as collateral. And if you don't own your own custody stack, you have a major issue in your hands. You are trusting a third party to actually hold your assets these assets that are critical for the solvency of your loan book, because that is the collateral that you're actually taking on. So very quickly, you realize that you can't actually do lending without having a custody stack. Same thing for trading. If you're actually trading in digital assets, where are you settling these two? Are you selling it as third-party wallets? And so you're trusting third-party wallets, third-party custody systems to actually settle these assets. So it doesn't matter where you come in at the stack of the digital asset equivalent to the prime brokerage stack, you realize that you need to own custody. And in fact, Anchorage started from institutional custody, but many other players started from other portions of the prime brokerage stack, so to speak, and they all have either acquired or tried to build their own custody solution. So all of them now have realized this need, and many of them are realizing that it is so hard to do custody in a safe manner, in a regulated manner, and not just for Bitcoin, but really for many hundreds of assets that exist that they're now partnering and using Anchorage digital in specifically Anchorage Digital Bank as a subcustodian. The same way that many large banks don't build their own gold vaults and they don't have security armed guards and these armored trucks, they subcustody that to third parties. People are now realizing that this is a great model also in digital assets. And so they're doing this subcustody model and using platforms and parties like Anchorage to help them out.
0: Without getting too technical, I'm really curious to ask you how custody works with digital assets. I think that in the traditional world, we almost take for granted now who these large custody banks and that they are secure and they can hold the assets and it's electronic and everybody understands, say, DTC. So how does kind of unit custody work in digital asset world? So when you think about the traditional worlds, ultimately,
1: as you mentioned, DTC gets to have the record of everything that is happening. And if there's anything that goes wrong, you get to go to a court and the court gets to change ownership. In crypto, there's this element of self-custody and the fact that these are bare instruments and in they at their core. And so loss of an asset is irrecoverable, and there's no clawback of a transaction that happens. It is not like a wire in which you have one day or two days to try to claw back from the destination bank. Here, there's nothing that you can do. Once it leaves the ownership, it's done. So how does that work in practice? And I have a very hard time answering questions while not trying to be too technical. But at the most fundamental level and core, think about Bitcoin and other crypto assets being based on public-private key pairs. What that means is there's a public component that everybody sees on this blockchain, which is the equivalent to your bank account number. So everybody can transfer assets to that bank account number. And you hold onto yourself a private component called a private key, which you can think of it as a gross oversimplification, but as a very long password that you memorize or store on your own. And so what this means is that anyone with a public portion of this, your bank account number, can transfer assets on-chain and anybody with this password gets to move them. And so gets to access the value that is on the blockchain. So that's at its basic core what's actually happening. And so these passwords are just the base elements of candidly modern cryptography. So everything from your browser to your email to many types of security work on this concept of public-private key security. But the innovation here is that this key actually in this password owns value. And who possesses the password possesses the access to the asset. And so that's why it's so critical. And it's think of the world's most valuable password. There's no recovery. You can't do an email recovery. You can't call someone to recover my Bitcoin because Bitcoin has no CEO. (laughs) How do you keep it safe? We have, from day one, created infrastructure that had in mind institutional needs. So at the time, as I mentioned, people were doing what we call cold storage. So that's the equivalent of what pirates did in the 1700s to protect their gold coins. (laughs) It was gold coins, you would store them in treasure chests, you'd bury them in an island and you'd have a little map on how to recover them. You're laughing, but this is exactly the equivalent to modern cold storage, which is very sophisticated investors with passphrases or smart cards, saving them in safety deposit boxes and then creating checklists on how to recover them. So it was a very manual process. What we've done is we brought to bear both Nathan and I's background to build a solution that was actually a digital solution that allowed us to access these assets fast without humans involved but allowed us to have the same type of security that cold storage provides the way that we've done it is we generate keys these long passphrases that are very sensitive inside of what we call hardware security modules hardware security modules has been around for many decades in fact Hardware security modules is what it's used by the military to store nuclear launch codes, for example. So it's that type of security. You know what's even more important than Bitcoin? Nuclear launch codes. (laughs) So that's the type of security that is actually being brought to bear. What we've done is we use these devices, we generate keys inside of hardware security modules, and then we make them be offline. They're never directly connected to the internet. So how do we do that? Well, what we've created effectively is the equivalent to a human going online, understanding what transaction needs to be done, taking that information offline to a very segregated location, say a data center, and then inputting information on what transaction needs to happen, and then bringing it back to an online system. So we've created what what can be described as an airlock. So you know how an airlock in space, you should never connect the inside of the space station to the outside because all the oxygen and all the air will just blow out. So how do they do it? Well, they effectively have these airlock mechanisms, An astronaut is on the inside of a space station, pressurizes the airlock, goes inside of the airlock, slowly depressurizes the airlock, and then can do a spacewalk, and then does a reverse on the way in. We've created an equivalent system, but for transactions to happen. So at no point do these hardware security modules and these servers that are physically controlled by us in data centers with biometrics and physical security, at no point do they ever connect directly to the internet. They are segregated from any public network by these airlocks that guarantee, physically guarantee, that there's no connection between any of these systems at any point and allow us to run many types of security audits on any kind of transaction moving back and forth to ensure that the right humans and the right institutions are moving the right assets to the right locations.
0: So when you first started this custody security solution, I'm really curious what you've seen in terms of the institutional adoption just on that part of your business.
1: When we started the business, the primary clients of this were venture funds, family offices, and crypto funds. So in 2017, that was the status quo of the market. Very sophisticated investors, but on the very, very bleeding edge of risk taking, early stage investments. And that's what was there. Four and a half years later, we are in a dramatic different place. Right now, the types of institutions that Anchorage engages with more and more are the largest consumer banks, the largest institutional banks. From an investor perspective, we've upgraded from family offices all the way to sovereign wealth funds that use Anchorage to take direct crypto positions. We have really a a very diverse set of client types. I think at this point, we have 37 different verticals of clients. So it's anywhere from the financial institutions to endowments to sovereign wealth funds to obviously the traditional funds, but also crypto native Miners, exchanges, all of the crypto native folks like protocols, the protocols themselves need custody for their treasuries, all the way to fintechs, corporates like Visa that we've participated in many different projects with around settlement. We bought an NFT for them. We have a partnership in where they can offer custody services to their clients using Anchorage. And of course, just the traditional financial behemoths of the world, the large custodians, the large consumer banks, the large institutional banks. So everybody right now has a crypto play, and many of them are very advanced in offering these services.
0: It sounds like, as you describe it, this whole ecosystem, or particularly on that portion of your business, has been kind of up and to the right for four and a half years. I'm curious what some of those bumps in the road have been.
1: It has been up and to the right. And it
0: feels like a monotonically
1: increasing function. And what I mean by that is it is not necessarily up and to the right in a linear fashion, also not in exponential fashion. is actually sort of like a multiple S-curve. So there's a bull market in which all the interest grows, everybody comes into the space, talent accrues, money pours into the space. And then there's a bear market where it's very interesting, even though there's maybe not as much talent coming to the space and as much money coming to the space, it also doesn't reduce which is an absolutely fascinating fact about crypto. All the talent gets attracted and comes into the space when there's bull markets, but they don't leave when there are bear markets. It's a one-way function from traditional finance and from tech into crypto. And that is one of the best data points that you can have for the maturity of a space and for the type of talent. So you add large amounts of cash being deployed with amazing teams and very ambitious ideas, and you really have just all the ingredients there to have a world-changing ecosystem and phenomenon. And we've already seen that happening. And so that's really interesting about bear markets is the fact that there's no talent leaving and the capital might not increase, but it actually stays constant. And across the five crypto bear markets or six bear markets that we've had, you've always seen these very high conviction entrepreneurs and investors stay in the space. So for us, what we've seen is we've seen the exact same thing. We've seen the companies start out with a very specific use case raise what effectively was a bull market, and then go through the bear market of 2018 and 2019, where we were lucky enough to be extremely well capitalized and just focus on the building. And then once we brought the product to market, you had the bull market that we've seen in crypto, and we've been able to capitalize ourselves at all the right times and just bring on more and more institutions and larger and larger institutions. So it's just been absolutely fascinating to be here. We also had the benefit of coming into this space in 2017 and learning from past mistakes from past companies that were in crypto through the bear market of 2015. One of the main things that we saw, there were companies that lost a very significant percentage of their employee base when a bear market came around. Imagine that you're a CEO of a company, you're running a company, and then there's a bear market, and then 30% of your company quits. That is incredibly hard on the culture, incredibly hard on the company, and it really informed my decision to ensure that we had very, very, very high conviction, crypto conviction. So anybody that comes in, we need to make sure that they understand what crypto means and what the volatility means and what is it going to feel like once everybody in the media says that crypto is dead for the thousandth time. What does that actually feel like? You intellectually can reason through it, but it's very different to actually live through it. So you make sure that your teams have very high crypto conviction, and we've been lucky enough that through the past two bear markets, there has not been any kind of churn when there's a bear market because we've been able to self-select for people that are mission convicted about where we're going.
0: So when you've had that talent stay with you, what have those talented people done in terms of the evolution of the custody solution that you offer today compared to when you first started in 2017?
1: There's been many appraisals. I think it's very fair to say that security is never a finished product. Security really is a process. And that's something that anybody that works in security tells you. It's kind of interesting because you're selling a product for security, but the reality is that your product is constantly evolving. The threats are constantly evolving. It's a very different product and attacker model before the invasion of the Ukraine and after you now have a different worldview over what security systems actually should be. And it's kind of fascinating how world events actually inform the architectural changes. From day one, we've had a very clear path on the evolution that we needed to go to. It's a very different security model that you have for a billion dollars that you need for a trillion dollars in crypto assets. And so we have a roadmap and we're on that roadmap. And every time we reach a different milestone, we ensure that all the things that we said we're going to do from a security perspective to augment it, to segregate it, to increase the transparency, to increase the ability for us to detect any kind of misbehavior. All of those things are just a roadmap that you constantly deliver on and you constantly iterate on, that you're constantly updating your mental model of how that should actually work.
0: So I know that Anchorage is quite different today than it was. I'd love to hear about the evolution of your product suite and the extensions you did beyond custody.
1: As we've described in the beginning, Anchorage started with custody. That was the main problem to be solved. Without owning private keys safely, there's nothing else in the business. So that was the main problem that we set out to solve. And we've done so for not just one asset, but hundreds of assets. The second component, and I think the view here is the majority of Anchorage business, if not all of it, has always been driven by client demand. Clients demanded a safe platform. And then after that, they said, Anchorage, this is fantastic. I love your platform, but I'm an RIA. As an RIA, I need to use a qualified custodian, a third-party qualified custodian. It's one of the rules that I have to meet. So can you help me be a regulated third-party qualified custodian. and helped me meet my regulatory obligations. And that's what ultimately led us on the path to become the first nationally chartered bank. So we are regulated by the OCC and we're the only crypto bank that has this ability. And this charter is exactly the same charter that puts us on the same footing as all of these other big banks like JP Morgan Chase and BNY Mellon, et cetera. So it's the same exact charter from the same exact regulator. So that was the ultimate conclusion of our path of serving our clients as an unambiguous third-party custodian, which did not exist until early 2021. Then clients went on and said, if I've already selected my custodian and I've deeply audited and it's deeply regulated and I trust the security, why can't I trade from the safety of my custody? And so that brought us to our next product suite, which was really brokerage, the ability to buy and sell crypto assets and aggregate liquidity. So today we have an RFQ system that aggregates over 25 different liquidity providers and really gives you best execution and best price because it aggregates all the liquidity. We're agency-based, so we're not doing prop trading against you. There's no conflicts of interest because we're not actually running an exchange and all of that gets settled onto the safety of the bank and of the security that you've already trust. Then after that, clients came to us and said, custody is great, but there's all of these new assets that do these very complex things. Some of them I need to vote on. There's governance decisions that need to be made. So in the traditional world, that would be the equivalent of imagine that you could have a stock on your brokerage account, but you could actually not vote on these proxy votes or you could actually not elect to make your your voice heard. That would obviously be a very bad experience for you. So we had to build those features into every single asset that we support. And then after that, clients started coming to us and said, hey, Bitcoin is proof of work, but there's all these new networks that do this thing called proof of stake in which if we don't do something actively, we're actually being diluted 7% a year or 10% a year. And so can you support staking? And so we started supporting staking. Same thing for lending. Anchorage, I have a billion dollars of crypto with you. Can't you borrow me a hundred million dollars and I'll put a billion dollars of collateral? Of course, that sounds like sound business. Massively over-collateralized liquid Assets trade 24-7, of course, will actually borrow dollars against crypto collateral. So from day one, the evolution has been based on client demand and always built on this strong security foundation of custody for hundreds of assets.
0: In each of these areas, so trading, governance, staking, financing, I'd be really curious, what does it take to be excellent in each of those for, say, Anchorage compared to your competitors in each of those areas?
1: I would say that every single one of them has a different component. So what it takes to be excellent at security is, well, number one, deep expertise with the types of systems that you need to engage with deep expertise with hardware security modules, deep expertise with distributed systems, expertise that in fact is incredibly, incredibly hard to get. There's not that many of these types of engineers that have this crossover experience of hardware distributed systems and security. So when this phenomenon started, there was no one in blockchain with five years of blockchain experience that did not exist, right? The industry did not exist. And so you could not hire anybody with experience, which has actually made us have to train people up. And it's very hard if you're not a security engineer, if you don't have two founders of a company that are just deep security engineers and deeply understand what this actually means and what the responsibility is of having billions and tens of billions of dollars of irrecoverable private keys. It's a very, very high level of responsibility, and obviously a very high technical bar that you need to meet. And so we had to train our own talent, which is something that in traditional, if you're creating a fintech or if you're creating a brokerage business, you can find talent in the space. You can find people that have had experience, decades of experience. There was no such thing for us. There was no one with any experience. Everything had to be thought from first principles because it was just something new and brought up from the ground up. So in terms of training, that was something that was very unique. For some of these other more traditional businesses say lending is a business in which risk management, the asset class is different. Of course, the modeling is different. The way that liquidation happens and the edge cases are different from a blockchain perspective. But in principle, the risk modeling, the collateralization ratios, the type of structures that you use, they're not that different. And so it's an interesting hybrid where the fundamental technology behind it is fundamentally different from traditional finance, but the businesses on top are not that different. And in fact, the way that Anchorage charges for these products and services is very typical, right? On the custody product is assets under custody. On the brokerage is BIPs on a trade basis. We charge net interest for lending, percentage of staked gains. So these are very traditional financial services, pricing models, and very traditional services, that are just built on a very different substrate and very different technological platform. How about staking? Staking is really interesting because it is a native way to generate return on the blockchain. So Ethereum is actually a proof of work blockchain that is very known, the second largest blockchain out there, that is about to actually move towards proof of stake. And what that means is that they're transitioning their consensus model from using miners and electricity in this mining, which are effectively solving very hard computational problems to ensure the consensus in the security of the network to a model in which you lock up some of your Ethereum and are rewarded for participating in the consensus. So the idea there is that you lock up some of your assets and you give them to certain servers and nodes on the network, and those nodes participate in helping the network reach consensus. So process transactions, and they ensure the safety of the network itself. And the reason why you do so is because by locking your assets, you have something to lose if you misbehave. If you misbehave, in theory, those assets could be taken away. You could be what do you call it, slashed for misbehaving. And so that's kind of the principle. Moving from a proof of work, which is very high intensity from an energy expenditure perspective, to a model in which the ownership of assets is the thing that you put in stake and you get rewarded for doing so. But a lot of the staking generate returns are actually very high. High single digit, and in some cases, double digit returns. What that means is you can look at it two ways. It's on one end, it's returns. On the other one is dilution if you're not staking. So when you're staking, you're at par with the rest of the network because you're being rewarded like everybody else that is staking, but everybody that is not staking is currently being diluted, say, 20% a year. And so it forces you to engage in the governance and forces you to participate in the network. And it also creates a very interesting model for generating returns. In fact, there's many people trying to do financial products around the fact that these blockchains now generate return at X percentage basis per year. So very interesting modeling. And... The same way that I mentioned that you can't do lending if you don't own the custody stack and you can't do brokerage if you don't own the settlement custody stack, you can't do staking because staking comes from the same private key, same password that owns the assets. That is the password that defines which vote is being cast in what direction. So that is ultimately also the ownership of the asset and the staking comes from the same exact place, which is the private key. So one more example as to why Custody needed to be the first building block that we tackled and that we solved, so then we could actually do other value-added services on top.
0: You also mentioned governance and the concept of proxy voting, and we've heard some about DAOs, and it sounds like a lot of that gets done in these discussion groups, Telegram, Discord. So how do you go about taking something that feels a little ad hoc if you're in these chat rooms and making that easier to use for your clients?
1: A lot of the larger projects actually have some pretty sophisticated governments, dashboards and governance mechanisms. And you're right that the Web3 phenomenon in general, so Web3 as a catch-all term for crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, all of these decentralized protocols as an umbrella term, Web3. It's very common for Web3 protocols to have what you call decentralized autonomous organizations, so DAOs and It's a set of collective people coming together, owning the asset, and the percentage of asset that they own of the total diluted market cap is the percentage of vote that they have on the network. And so they vote on the outcome of what decisions should be made for the protocol. So all the future is decentralized, and that is where decentralization starts, is from the government aspect down. So for large institutions, they primarily invest in the more sophisticated protocols and the ones that have been around for a long time. And those actually have some very sophisticated dashboards and the ability of understanding which votes are in there. We've actually built at Anchorage a very interesting product, which allows you to see what votes are going on, whether they're executive votes, whether they're polls, see the details behind them, links to the full change that is going to be enacted on chain if this is passed, shows you in real time, which is very interesting how the votes are going. So you can actually see in real time, whether yes is winning or no is winning or abstention is winning, whatever it is. And we created a product in which from the safety of Anchorage, you can actually vote on the outcome of these metrics. Now to address your question more specifically, you're absolutely right that on the long tail of assets, Discord and Twitter, crypto Twitter is primarily the place where discussion is happening. And what we've seen is that The crypto funds and the more bleeding edge funds that are deeply involved in crypto are on all these discords and are very active on Twitter. And so they're going where the discussion is happening.
0: It sounds like, say, in this governance area that for the larger projects, you're able to systematize it. But then, as you said, there's this long tail of other things. I'm really curious about what happens if something goes wrong, and it calls to mind this idea of insurance of assets, right? In traditional world, at banks, you have FDIC insurance for a certain amount of your savings. What does that look like in the crypto world today?
1: So there is insurance for assets, and in fact, Anchorage does have insurance. We have modeled our infrastructure. We have gone to all the insurers, the Aeons, the Marshes, the Lloyds of London, and we in fact insured the assets on the platform. So that is something that you have available today at Anchorage. Now, ultimately, you do have to realize that the insurance appetite is still growing. And so there's not enough insurance interest to actually cover for all of the assets that are currently on all of the different crypto platforms out there. But it is a big component in a component that, again, works like the traditional world. You have asset insurance and you have these large insurers actually making sure that things are covered in case of loss. Now, your question was a little bit more generic. What happens if something goes wrong? There's actually many ways of things going wrong in crypto that are unlike traditional assets. For example, what happens if a blockchain simply stops? or what happens if there's code vulnerability on the blockchain. So ultimately those are left in two big buckets, I would say. On one of them, Anchorage as a custodian, and we own the private keys and we're full custodial. So Anchorage has exclusive access to the keys of the assets. And that's one of the requirements from the regulators for qualified custody. So possession and control of the asset. So we take responsibility for a lot of it, a lot of the end-to-end life cycle. Now, if the blockchain stops, Or if the blockchain has some critical bug, that to us is qualified as an investment risk. That is the due diligence of the investor that needs to inspect. Even though we do security audits for all these protocols and all these smart contracts, it's ultimately an investment call. It is the same thing as betting on a product that doesn't achieve product market fit. In this case, it's betting on the product that was fundamentally flawed for some reason. And remember that Anchorage does not serve retail. We are exclusively institutional. So institutions are very sophisticated. And they do have analysts and they analyze this as an individual investment, the same way that they're analyzing an individual investment in a company. So this is part of their model is if something goes wrong with the blockchain that is critical, then that is effectively an investment that didn't achieve part of market fit, ran out of money. One of the many reasons why early stage investments fail.
0: So you mentioned earlier on becoming a bank in part to serve your clients' desires for being regulated and secure in that way. I'm curious what the drawbacks are of being a bank compared to some of your competitors.
1: I think being a bank is interesting in the sense that the main drawback of being a bank is actually also the main advantage. And what I mean by that is the main drawback is that there's a very high bar for scrutiny for a bank in a way that there's no other institution and regular institution that really has to meet. So that high bar means it's more expensive there's a lot more ongoing audits. There's a lot more going ongoing scrutiny, which makes it a lot more expensive to meet this bar. And in fact, one drawback that is unique to Anchorage, because we are the first federally chartered bank, is the fact that we're the first. And being the first means that we're also finding things and having to explain things to regulators that we're the first ones to encounter because there's no trail that has been blazed before. So blazing that trail is very rewarding on one hand, but on the other one, it is also extremely, extremely hard. These are very complex types of technologies that are all unique and distinct. And I think that's an unappreciated fact. When we call them crypto assets, we bundle them all on the same type of bucket. It's just crypto assets. But the reality is that this is completely different from integrating, say, with NICE. When you integrate with the New York Stock Exchange, say that you have Amazon stock and One day you have Amazon stock and you integrate with the API and you can trade it. And if Square say IPOs tomorrow, then you now just have a new ticker. And it's the same exact integration, same exact API, but now you have a new ticker. Crypto assets do not work like that. Every single blockchain is completely different than the other one. So Bitcoin is completely different from Ethereum that is completely different from Solana that is completely different from Flow. So the reality is that you don't have shortcuts. You have to invest in supporting individually every single one of these blockchains and this is very costly from an engineering perspective very costly from a maintenance perspective and it's extremely hard for maintenance and in fact on the other side on the positive side it's also a very high mode because if you want to compete against anchorage you have to go back four and a half years and then support bitcoin support ethereum and hundreds of assets so to catch up you have to go a lot faster than where we're going but this is extremely extremely interesting because Since they're so sophisticated and complex and all of them are unique, the conversations with regulators also mimic this type of complexity. And so I would say that that's the major drawback of being a bank is the high scrutiny helps you in winning deals. And the fact that we're at eye level from a regulatory perspective with the big banks means that Anchorage is the favorite partner for the big banks because they understand what a federal charter is. They also have one. On the other side, that means that we are blazing the trail because we're the first ones and we're actually having to explain this increasing complexity to the regulators. And so that's very costly from a time, from an investment perspective, and obviously from a compliance perspective.
0: I'd love to hear more about this deal with Visa. You mentioned the NFT you created for them and just would love to hear how a big company like that ends up partnering with you.
1: So Visa has been one of the greatest companies to collaborate with. They are very pro-crypto and they've had some very innovative takes into the space. So they were actually one of our investors in our Series B a few years ago, and we've been partnering with them on on many different types of initiatives. So maybe I can give you a little bit of a flavor for three different subtypes, and I will cover the NFTs. But first, let me start with one of the things that Visa realized is that Anchorage provided the platform for custody and trading and so that they could actually build businesses on top of our platform, which is fantastic because it's absolutely what Anchorage wants to be. We want to be the platform that has the building blocks that allows any institution out there, any type of institution to build products in crypto in a safe, regulated and easy manner. And so Visa recognized that from very early on. The investment appetite there was realizing that this was the case. So the first partnership that we did was really about custody and the fact that Visa could offer to the clients that they already have and the relationships that already have. And they could use Anchorage to facilitate subcustody of crypto assets. So we would do the heavy lifting from a technology perspective on custody and on trading, and then they would aggregate, create networks to add value added on their APIs and then serve other institutions with it. So we announced it, and that's a really cool use case because it's a perfect example of Anchorage operating as a subcustodian that I've described earlier. The second partnership was a very interesting one, and it was about stablecoins, coins. People think crypto is, again, one thing, but the reality is that stablecoins are one of the fastest growing areas of crypto, and they don't have the volatility because they are pegged to the US dollar in 99% of the cases of stablecoins. So what Visa wanted to do in that specific partnership is there was a realization that there's these card issuers. Say there's an exchange like Crypto.com. Crypto.com wants to issue a card for the retail users. But they don't just want to issue a normal card. They want this card to be backed by crypto. So if you have a wallet on crypto.com and you have a bunch of Bitcoin and a bunch of USDC and stablecoins, and you swipe a card to buy a coffee, wouldn't it be great if you could pay for that coffee with the crypto on your wallet? So that's the core principle behind having a crypto backed Visa credential. And this is, in fact, the solution towards the criticism that crypto can't be accepted everywhere. No, we can. There's 60 plus million Visa merchants that accept Visa credentials and those Visa credentials can use crypto on the back end. Yes, it's not a direct transaction on chain. You're not going with your phone and paying in crypto, but you're still transacting with your crypto value, which is ultimately what actually matters. Now, the issue is that many of these very large growing exchanges had to create a relationship with an issuing bank, had to keep money set aside for settlements every day with the card networks, and that was very inefficient. It was hard for them to get there. And it was very inefficient. So if they already have stable coins, wouldn't it be great for the settlement between these exchanges and these issuers? Wouldn't it be great if they could just settle directly on stable coins? So if you have USDC on a consumer's wallet, why not just send the USDC to settle this transaction instead of turning USDC into dollars through an issuing bank and then Fed wiring the actual money to the card network? That is very inefficient. So this way, you could actually do it more often per day, reducing risk, and you have instant finality because blockchain is not a credit-based system. There's instant finality on these blockchains. So the partnership was Anchorage supporting the capability of Visa to receive settlements in stablecoins from these issuers versus having to receive them in fiat. And what Anchorage would do ultimately would convert stablecoins into dollars and then finish the settlement to the traditional Fedwire rails with Visa. So from Visa's perspective, they still receive dollars, but from the actual issuer perspective, they're actually settling with stablecoins. So a great hybrid of the crypto world and the fiat world.
0: So lastly, how about the NFT?
1: Yeah, so finally, the NFT one, there's more partnerships, obviously, ongoing, but the NFT one was a really interesting one. Visa came to us and said, hey, Anchorage, we want you to help us buying a CryptoPunk. That was the introduction. And so it was like, OK, let's take this in parts. So the goal, obviously, was to buy an NFT. And if you want to build a product and NFTs, you obviously have to go through the experience of buying one and really clearing the rails of how do you do this. So Anchorage helped Visa. This is very much Visa's idea, Visa-led. They chose the NFT. Anchorage helped with acquiring the NFT, helped with obviously doing the due diligence on this NFT and on the seller, and is actually custodying the NFT for Visa. So there's a federally chartered bank custodianing an NFT, the first digital asset, the first thing ever to have this type of custody of a digital asset, which is kind of cool. And of course, it was great marketing for us and a great exposure. The downside of having announced this with Visa is that all of these hundreds of clients on the platform started reaching out saying, Hey, Diogo, I saw that you now do NFT custody. Why aren't you custodying my monkeys or my apes or my crypto punks? <laughs> and so we were a little bit forced. Our hand was a little bit forced to do something that was not on the original roadmap at all. NFT custody was not one of my priorities, but we were forced. Our hand was forced. And now I would say we have a little bit of a zoo going in terms of uh, all of these different animals that are NFTs that are stored on the platform.
0: If we sit down in a year or a couple of years from now, what are these other areas that you're hearing from clients of things they would like to see you build?
1: One of the major focuses that, again, is very interesting about crypto is uses of stablecoin. So we talk about volatility, we talk about the space, but the reality is that one USDC is worth $1 and one DAI was worth $1. And so that doesn't change. And it is crypto backed and it is the use of crypto platform, but it's not necessarily investment in crypto as a protocol or risk asset or an inflation hedge or anything like that. No, it's just a more efficient settlement system for dollars. The thing that I've been the most surprised by has been all of these different corporates that are looking at their core businesses and they're seeing how a better system that has instant finality and has very cheap transactions can actually improve their own profits. And they get to build new products. Say as a hypothetical example here, if you are a food delivery company or a car sharing company, imagine that you want to do the following. You want after a ride, your driver gets paid immediately for that specific ride and gets to walk up to a Walgreens and use the $50 that they made from their ride to buy whatever they want. Imagine that transaction, that sequence of transaction. Somebody's dropped off, and then the next step is for somebody to swipe their visa card and then buy something using that or a debit card and using those funds. That is what the system should be. There's no reason as to why these transactions shouldn't be settled individually. And it creates just different business opportunities. Same thing for food delivery. Imagine that you're paid for each delivery as soon as the delivery is done. It really takes this to a next level in terms of how money moves in the economy, how liquid these funds are instead of paying every two months, instead of paying every four months. In fact, we all know about payday loans and about these types of inefficiencies in the traditional infrastructure being exploited in some cases in ways that are detrimental to people. And if we had systems that were like this, that were final, that allowed us to have better settlement systems faster and more efficient, then we might not actually need these inefficiencies in these types of infrastructure. So they're looking at their core business and saying, hey, if I use stablecoins here, I could do X, Y, and Z. Or I could create a new product because I don't need to wait for T plus two. Or I can reduce the risk in my systems and risk loss because there's no clawback or because fraud gets reduced or because now this is available to me and it's actually a way better product than it was before. So that's actually been the most fascinating thing has been the fintechs and the corporates coming to us and saying, hey, I want to build this on top of stablecoins and I need a regulated custodian. I need somebody to turn fiat into stable coins. And I need all of these other building blocks that you have maybe borrowing against crypto collateral, maybe participating on some blockchain, whatever it is, they want it. And that's been absolutely fascinating to see the core businesses being changed by crypto.
0: What are some of the other areas of inefficiency that you see, maybe even more broadly, as opportunities in the ecosystem?
1: I would say one that has been talked about quite a bit, but it hasn't quite materialized is, of course, security tokens. The trading of equities and the transparency around ownership, and we've talked about the DCC, the fact that it is, these systems are not transparent about who owns what, and the blockchain really is a true solution to a lot of these problems. And so I think it's been very slow moving and slow going, but there's very, very, very high potential on equities and tokenization in general of mortgages, of equities, of other financial instruments that could actually gain a lot from the transparency and the speed of settlement here. So I think those are, are still up and coming. And we've been talked about for quite a while and quite a lot, but they haven't materialized, even though they're very, very high potential still.
0: Dude, I think that's a great place to wrap. Very appreciative of your support of this mini series. But before I let you go, we have our traditional closing questions that I need to ask you. So <laughs> what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: yeah I think this is unfortunately a little bit of a lame answer, but my answer is reading. I usually aim for about fifty books a year, and it's not really a hard target. I usually go for quality and retention of the knowledge over quantity, but it's still a goal, so that's what i what I would say is is my hobby. All the free time that I have invested is uh trying to achieve my fifty books a year goal. What is your biggest personal pet peeve? That's an interesting one i would, I would say probably unfinished cans of LaCroix is my uh, biggest personal pet peeve. And it's very unfortunate that my wife, Molly, does have this particular habit, but you know, this is how I know it's true love.
0: My chief of staff, Hank, is a big LaCroix drinker, so I'm going to have to check in with him on that make sure everything gets finished up in his house. <laughs> how about on the investment crypto side, your biggest pet peeve in the ecosystem? I think it's less about the crypto ecosystem, but just investment ecosystem in general. I think
1: one of my biggest pet peeves is this FOMO-driven investment culture. And the whole, the first lead starts the round type of situation where until we have a lead, nobody commits. But once you have a lead, everybody wants to commit and everybody wants to lead. So I think this dynamic happens very commonly in early stage fundraising. And to me, it's always felt like there's just lack of independent conviction in most early stage investors.
0: And so it's consistently one of my biggest pet peeves. Yeah, that's a good one. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: That would be an easy one and again also not not very original, but the first one has to be my father. He taught me how to program at 12. He was very supportive throughout all my career choices. I think the only ding on my dad was that he forced me to do the PhD, which you know has very limited utility. That would be the first one. The second one has to be my co-founder, Nathan McCauley. It's just been 12 years of working together. We have done all of our careers together effectively because we met so early on in our careers at Square. And he's just been somebody that has made me push for higher and higher goals, made me a better person. And it's just such a good compliment. I can't realistically say that I could have done any of this by myself. And it's just so, so great to have a partner that you trust a thousand percent to be able to share the
0: burden of what it is to create a company. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: Can I say the PhD was the biggest mistake to me that I made? <laughs> I think uh, to a certain extent it was. Imagine that instead of 2011, I would have joined Square in 2009. My financial outcome would have been very, very different. So maybe I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll say that doing a PhD was my biggest mistake.
0: <laughs> How about in your time at Anchorage?
1: At Anchorage, there was one that is interesting. I think hindsight is 2020, and I still think that the decision-making process was very solid. But if you recall, when we had the first lockdown, the beginning of the pandemic in March, April 2020, we made the decision at Anchorage that we wanted to freeze hiring, and we didn't know where things were going, and so we we froze hiring and for a few months, we kind of like saw and tried to understand exactly what was happening. I think in hindsight, if I had known that there was V-shaped recovery, I would have obviously not frozen hiring. I think the main reason for that is that when you freeze hiring effectively, you sort of very quickly lose the muscle that you need to have a very high-performing hiring machine. And even a gap of three months is enough for you to just lose the momentum And then it becomes very hard to recover. And so if you froze the hiring for three months, and then it takes you three to five months to recover to be a world-class hiring machine again, then all of a sudden you are nine months behind on hiring. And so if I had to do that one again with hindsight bias, I would have not frozen hiring or I would have kept it going in terms of the machine, but just with an even higher bar for hiring versus kind of like freezing
0: down completely. I'd love to dive down on that a little bit and just ask, what have you learned about successful hiring? I've been very lucky to
1: have been at Square very early where hiring was world-class. And so a lot of the habits that I have and a lot of the biases that I have, I can trace them to the origins of Square. I will tell you this, the first person on the payroll at Anchorage, the first person that we hired before myself or Nathan were on the payroll was a recruiter. In fact, on our payroll system, I'm actually not number one, I'm number two. Because this person had to set up the payroll because he sent us an email saying, hey, I want to be paid. And we answered, then go set up the payroll system. And so that was (laughs) how the company started. So from very early on, we knew that a world-class hiring experience is something that you absolutely need to hiring. Because if you are hiring one out of 10 people that you interview, then that means that your interview process should be made in such a way that the other 90% of people that don't get accepted have a terrific experience and will tell their friends, hey, I wasn't able to meet this bar or this was not the right opportunity for me, but you should absolutely go to Anchorage and apply to Anchorage. And I can't tell you how amazing this has been and how many references and people that we've hired have come from people that we've interviewed and have not hired. And so focusing on a world-class interview process and on leaving people with a fantastic aftertaste, From day one, from literally hiring the first employee of Anchorage, being a recruiter has been something that has paid dividends and has been compounding over the past four and a half
0: years. What advice would you give someone to create that world-class interviewing process and that feeling of experience, even if they're not the right person for the job? I would
1: absolutely say you go to companies that have done this very successful and you hire somebody that has done it before. There's a lot of unintuitive things and there are things that just seem obvious, but you don't know how much they actually matter. And so they end up not being prioritized that somebody that has executed it at a world-class team just knows instinctively.
0: What's an example of one of those maybe counterintuitive things that someone who's done it before knows instinctively, but someone who hasn't wouldn't?
1: I think definitely the focus on the people that get rejected and the experience of people that get rejected versus the people get hired is something that is not intuitive at all. So how you follow up, when you're rejecting, how you give that feedback, do you help people find other roles that are similar in different companies? The amount of work that goes into saying no to someone in a constructive manner, in a way that is not adversarial, in a way that is actually helpful and gives them feedback for them to improve, it is unique and people don't focus on that. In fact, we've had people that applied to Anchorage, didn't get in, and then three years later applied for Anchorage and got in because they had... A different trajectory in their career, and they were in a different place, and we had roles that were perfect for them. So that is paid dividends again, over and over again. It's unintuitive for many reasons. Number one, because you obviously want to focus on the people that got in and the people that are going to accept, but then you don't realize of the advantages of the network effect of the ninety percent of people that go through your process that tell everybody else, and the fact that every rejection is a potential future acceptance. What
0: teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: There's a couple of them. I think. My dad's rationality and love for technology and thinking from first principles have stayed with me for a long, long time. And from my mom's side, there's been something that is very, very unique. In your life, there's problems that you make a big deal out of that are not a big deal at all. And my mom has always been very unique in the sense of how she could actually reduce problems into their core, fundamental, individual building blocks and then allowed me to reason through why they're not a big deal. So silly example, but when I traveled, I was always very nervous about forgetting something. I'm going to forget my belt. I'm going to forget my flip flops. I'm going to forget something. And my mom is always taking this posture, very soothing posture of, Diogo, do you have your passport and your credit card? Those are the only two things that you need. If you reduce it down to it, you can always buy flip flops, can always buy everything. And so it's a silly example, but the level of anxiety that I had about forgetting things was just, so dramatically higher than the outcome of me not actually bringing them. But yet, over and over again, I kept making the same mistake. And of course, this has a lot higher implications and larger implications in your life. They're a lot less silly than forgetting things on a trip. But to this day, I travel a lot. And every time I'm packing my bag, I remember my mom's advice saying, Diogo, do you have your passport and you have your credit card? And that just reduces a lot of the anxiety that I have about packing.
0: (laughs) All right, Diogo, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think it's a hard one just because I don't think that current Diogo could legitimately give advice
1: to 10-year-ago Diogo and have the advice be well-received. It's kind of interesting for you to think that you need to go through certain experience in life for you to actually be in the right place at the right time to learn the right lessons. And so it's just very hard for people to learn from other people's mistakes But I would definitely say that I would just bring literature. I would bring books and authors that I have read that I would have liked to have read a lot earlier. Say David Deutsch, The Beginning of Infinity, which is one of my favorite books that I just reread late last year. That is just an absolutely beautiful book packed with just great insight and that in a way gives you a beautiful worldview and world model that I just am drawn to and I'm instinctively drawn to. And that has actually changed my career or career trajectory and how I think about wealth, how I think about status seeking, how I think about a lot of these just core things in life that lead you towards happiness or non-happiness. I would have wished that I would have known about these authors in these books a lot earlier because I don't think personally I could have convinced Pastor Diogo to change his trajectory, but absolutely some of these
0: authors could. Diogo, thanks so much for your support of this great mini-series, and thanks so much, as always, for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.